1: and I'm in conversation today with Scott Shute. Scott is at the intersection of the workplace and ancient wisdom traditions. He's been an active advocate for customers and employees in the technology space for over 20 years with roles ranging from sales, customer advocacy, and customer service leadership. Previously, he was the vice president of LinkedIn's customer operations organization. In his current role as head of mindfulness and Compassion at LinkedIn, Scott blends his lifelong practice and passion with his practical leadership and operations experience. His mission is to change work from the inside out by mainstreaming mindfulness and operationalizing compassion. He is the author of the new book, The Full Body Yes, available in May 2021. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. So excited to be here with you. It's a great delight. I have to say that uh, being as old as I am, and (laughs) as somebody once said, introducing me, uh, an OG of meditative (laughs) space. I didn't even know what it meant. I said, what does that mean? And they said, original gangster. When I hear somebody has a title, a work title, head of mindfulness and compassion, I nearly want to double over laughing. Like, how'd that (laughs) happen?
0: Yeah, You know,
1: because, of course, I came back from India in 1974, and that was unthinkable. Mm -hmm. So here we are.
0: Here we are. We've come a long ways. So thank you for getting the big rocks out of the way.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. (laughs) And congratulations on your new book. It's quite a feat in in these times, especially. So how does it feel bringing out the book, um, especially at such an unusual time?
0: Oh, it's... um... Well, personally, it's super gratifying. I've been thinking about writing a book for 15 or 20 years, and every time I sat down, it just wasn't quite it. And I was coming back from um, an event with my friend Soren, who some of you know from the Wisdom 2.0 community. And Soren's driving, I'm in the front seat, and he gets this funny look, and he looks over at me, he says, the universe has told me to tell you it's time to write your book. Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> and we both laughed, and I kind of checked in, you know, kind of the deeper part of myself, I'm like, yeah, it it is, and and then the timing worked out just so that I started writing right when the quarantining for the pandemic started. Oh,
1: interesting! And,
0: and so I traded commuting time for writing time, and it honestly, it probably wouldn't have happened any other way.
1: Well, this is actually a fast delivery then, because quarantine yeah, I wrote it in happened. 10 weeks. Oh my gosh! Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> it just all came out. It was it was time. It was the right time.
1: That's Songs. really quite incredible. I mean, because, you know, usually, mm-hmm. of course, the process is much slower than that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Wow, good for you.
0: Thank you. I'm super excited to share it with people.
1: Well, somebody I've traded in travel time, too, but I'm not sure i traded it in <laughs> for anything as worthy as that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, oh, I'm excited about it. I, somebody asked me what success meant for the book, and I, just, I said, I, I just want people to read it. I just want people to read it. I think, I think it'll be meaningful for the right people, you know.
1: So, for those who are less familiar with you and your work, can you share about yes. how you first encountered meditation practice and what drew you to that world? Sure.
0: Well, I was living on a farm in Kansas. Very, I grew up on a family farm, fourth generation farmers, and um, you know, I attended the local church that we had gone to for. Four generations of, of family, and it just didn't make any sense to me. Uh, I, I felt like I had this deep connection with the divine, but what we were doing just didn't just didn't resonate with me. And then my brother returned from his, you know, pilgrimage. I guess he's an older brother. He was trying to make a living as a rock star, as a bass player, and as the stages and the paychecks got a little bit smaller, uh, he ended up coming back to run the farm with my dad. And he kept disappearing for these long weekends. You know, and he seemed different. I'm like, dude, what is going on with you? And he was super cagey. He wouldn't tell anybody about it. And finally, my sisters and I pinned him down. And he had found a different path. Um, and as he was explaining this path and kind of the belief system and the practices, I just started weeping like this this connection. I was just like overwhelmed with this connection with um, the thing, the divine, whatever you want to call it. And I just, I just felt like I'd come home. And part of that practice was... Um, I would call it contemplation, you know, from the outside looks like meditation, but uh, it involves this practice. And that's been a big part of me ever since I started teaching it in college. And then uh, fast forward to bringing it to bringing a portion of it to LinkedIn starting about six years ago. But that's how I got started.
1: Well, it's also a really interesting evolution, because uh, not everybody brings their practice which is often considered so personal right um to their workplace right
0: yeah it was um you know about i've been at linkedin now for over eight years and about two years into it so about six years ago i realized it was such an open place you know our ceo jeff weiner was talking about his own meditation practice using headspace at the time Mm -hmm. and he talks about compassion and compassionate leadership and i was thinking wow maybe this is a place I can bring my practice and share, you know, in a secular way, in a way where I can find language that it's inclusive and open. And I sat down with my friend who runs our wellness organization. And at the time I was the vice president of global customer operations. I had a big job. I was leading a team of a thousand people. So I was hanging out with my friend and we were talking about meditation and he was telling me what, I asked him what we did at LinkedIn. He was sharing. He's like, he saw this look in my eyes. He says, wait a minute, do you do something? I'm like, yeah, I could I could lead something. And he got super excited about it. And I got super excited about it. And I went back to my desk and I did absolutely nothing about it for three months because I was afraid. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was, when I was a kid, uh, this new thing that I had found, this practice was not popular with my parents or with, you know, the community. And so I had kind of that same fear. It's like, okay, um, am I okay doing this? Am I going to be made fun of? What's this going to do for my brand? What are people going to think of me? Am I going to get in trouble? And I finally just got over myself and just did it. And so first, the first time there was one person there and I'm sure that guy was just as terrified as I was because I never saw him again. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next week there were three and then there were five and then it became a regular thing. Then it would be like, Okay, well, the marketing team's having this offside and they're going to do breakout sessions at one point. You want to lead one of the breakouts and do a meditation? Sure. 80 people. Or, you know, the CFO is having a summit. Can you kick off their summit with a meditation? Sure. 400 people. And pretty soon I just became known as the meditation exec. And I had raised my hand to be the executive sponsor of a mindfulness program, which we didn't have. We created one. And then I did that for three or four years as a volunteer. And then the tipping point for me was that our CEO, Jeff, gave the commencement address at Wharton and talked about compassion. Right. So, this is your, at a commencement address, you get one big piece of advice, right? His big piece of advice was if you want to be successful in life and in work, be compassionate. And then, you know, the next day he's on TV and it's all the reporters want to talk about. And I was thinking, oh, okay, it's time. It was time for me personally, because I'd been in my role for six years and I was, I was ready to, Quote do mindfulness as a career. I was going to do it somewhere. And then it was also time for LinkedIn to invest because if we have this message from the CEO that compassion is the most important thing you can do, we send 15,000 people back to their desks with that message. What does that mean? And so I made a pitch to, to Jeff, our CEO, to our head of HR. And with their immense support, they essentially gave me a blank piece of paper to go figure it out. And so for the last two and a half years, my role has been I'm head of mindfulness and compassion, and my job is to change work from the inside out by mainstreaming mindfulness and operationalizing compassion. So I think that's pretty cool.
1: Wow, it's extremely cool. I mean, I I really like that, especially like the sense of operationalizing, although it's not a word that, you know, (laughs) you find in the ancient texts, but... (laughs) Um, I mean, I think that in some ways that's the whole point, because we all hold certain values in the abstract, but what does it mean, you know, like love thy neighbor as thyself. But as one friend said to me, he heard that as a child growing up in the Church of England. And from the time he was nine or so, he would hear that saying and it would just thrill him. But he was always in trouble because then he would ask people, well, how? Yeah. Like yeah. we don't actually like our neighbor that much, you know, yeah. like or we're afraid of them or, you know, right. so the how is like, is like a huge question for sure.
0: And, and it happens in different ways. And I, the way I define compassion, well, in its most simplest form, I think about it when we're moving from me behavior to we behavior,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, so my, my full definition would be three parts. It's first having an awareness of others a mindset of wishing the best for them, and then the courage to take action. And of course that happens at the individual level. This is the part of compassion we're all familiar with. If somebody is having a hard day, we do something for them. We think about them instead of just ourselves. That's easier to understand. And we can still operationalize it as a company. But for me, I think what's really interesting, what I'd like to spend the rest of my career on is operationalizing at a company level. um, Because I think this is new territory in how we're talking about it. So Mm -hmm. as an example, our head of sales will stand in front of five or 6,000 salespeople at sales kickoff and say, Look, our job as salespeople is to provide long term value to our customers. So don't sell something they don't need at the end of the quarter just so you can hit your quota. It's like, wow, okay, that was not mm-hmm. how I was taught as a 24 year old salesperson, I guarantee you. Or in product management, as we do product development, and a product manager will come to, the executive product team kind of presenting their, their product or their latest version of the product. And if it goes something like this, they're saying, okay, well, when we do this thing, it will result in, let's say 12% more clicks. Like, okay, great. What's the customer experience like? And they go, uh, well, did I mention it was 12% more clicks? It's like the meeting, the meeting Mm -hmm. just kind of stops. And so no, no, no. And it turns into an object lesson about how we're, our whole job is to provide value to our customers. It's not you know, it's long term, not just about us. And so these are the types of things that we can put into place that aren't so foreign, but get us to a place where we're thinking about the we instead of just about the me.
1: Actually, I have a quotation from your book um, about compassion, awesome. which says uh, compassion doesn't have to be complicated. As humans, one of our deepest held needs is the need to be seen to be heard, to be acknowledged, to be gotten. Sometimes mm-hmm. the most powerful thing we can do is to just listen, to see the other person, to hold space for them as they express themselves, as they take steps on their own journey to their true self. So That's pretty that, good. I like hearing that when you read it's it. excellent. You know, <laughs> You wrote it really well, so that works. Which, uh, as totally as a side note, did you, are you doing an audio version of the book? Have you done I audio? I am. I'm, re- I'm recording it next week. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> I am. Yeah, it doesn't have to be complicated. You know, I think, well, here's, here's my model, my mental model of kind of how this works like life and love. So, f- look, for me, compassion is just another way of saying love. And love for me is just another way of saying the divine, right? So this is the language I use to talk about the biggest things that are in my life. But I think about us as icebergs and we all kind of know that thing where you just show the other person what's on top of the water, right? But the bulk of you, of us is under the water. And so I imagine like I'm at a party and I, I tend I'm I'm kind of gregarious but I tend towards the introversion side on the on the energy spectrum. And so parties where I don't know anybody is just horrible for me. So maybe I'm hanging out by the chips and dip and I'm hanging there with my you know some other guys and at first if we're just talking about the weather like this is this is that on top of the iceberg part. But when we start to engage, when we start to share about ourselves, and usually there's some test volleys, right? We talk about our hobbies or sports or kids or whatever and we build a relationship we're starting to lower the waterline and if we go further if we really share something that's kind of vulnerable and the other person meets it with respect and love and they they also share something vulnerable then wow it feels so good like we've dropped this waterline down like and we want to share more i think this is what's going on like when we can share our full self to another person and they they hold that space for it and they share themselves these are where our deepest relationships are. And this is where we feel the most gotten, the most joy, the most love, the most unconditional love. The, the challenge is it's, you know, it's super simple to talk about. It's really hard to do. Because as soon as you say something like, I don't know, okay, I'm interested in whatever, the the type of music I play, and the other person goes, Oh, well, I don't really like that. Then whoops, the waterline goes back up and we start talking about the weather again. But when we find these people who really get us. It's magic.
1: Well, one of the things that occurs to me is that it's perhaps somewhat complex to do in a workplace because if you're revealing that much, you're also revealing your vulnerabilities and mm. maybe your fears. And and that doesn't always feel like it's safe or appropriate.
0: That's true. I think, I think this um, pandemic and quarantining and everybody's on video conferencing has helped because a number of things. One is when we have as an example of LinkedIn, we have company all hands meeting. We're all on, you know, video conference. So we see the execs in their homes with their sometimes their dog running by or their kids or their kids artwork behind them. And it humanizes all of us. And then if you go a step further, again, it's the iceberg at the company. If the if the execs or anybody talks about their own challenges, like just admits that it's hard, then it gives us all permission to admit that it's hard and to talk about our own challenges. Because as humans, we are we are programmed to mirror vulnerability, right? So if our leaders or those around us share a little bit of, even a little bit of vulnerability, then it's easier for us to be ourselves as well. And so I think that we're discovering that we don't have to have this kind of tough facade where everything's right and everything's happy and it's all the Instagram life. Like we can be a little more human and real with each other and and the upside is we're gonna get better results. Um, one of the things I cite is Google's study, about, I don't know, five or six years ago, they did the study called Project Aristotle. They wanted to know what are the factors of developing a high-performance team? And I'm not sure what they were looking for when they first started, but I'm guessing that some of them thought, oh, it's gonna be how smart they are or how diverse their education backgrounds were, or whatever. But it turns out that the number one factor in developing a high performance team is psychological safety. Hmm. And that's that ability to be me and to be me if I fail, but also to be me if I win. Because I think that's sometimes even harder in a team environment. Goes back to being connected.
1: Do people at LinkedIn have um, kind of communications training or is this... Oh, wow. That's an interesting
0: question. I think, I think it happens by example. Okay. Because what happens is, you know, it happens in every company meeting where the executives are modeling the behavior. And I think as a leader, this is the, the, the most important thing you can do. Just modeling behavior about how to treat each other and modeling behavior about how to show up. And that creates this, you know, umbrella of safety, but it also creates this expectation that you will act a certain way actually, I think this is a really important point about companies. I think companies have an opportunity to shape consciousness in a way that, you know, religions or government have been doing for thousands of years. But some religions and many governments have lost, you know, the high road. And so Mm -hmm. it's up to these companies. You know, if you're going to join a company, you have to kind of fit into the company culture. So a company has an extraordinary power to, to shape a consciousness
1: when i was working um through this project at uh, the Garrison Institute in Garrison New York for domestic violence shelter workers we started with uh bringing tools of yoga and meditation to frontline workers and then and then that moved over to directors and supervisors and the directors themselves came up with a kind of slogan yeah which was that they wanted to instill a culture of wellness at work mm. And these are, you know, pretty brutal workplaces. And yeah. it was very interesting because people had different ideas, including um, I'm going to grow a rooftop garden or I'm going to bring in healthier snacks or something. And everybody talked about a physical space right. where the staff could go just to chill, you know, right. just right. to just to simply be. And interestingly enough, um, one director of a shelter, because a culture, of course, might mean, your own body and mind, it might mean your desk, it might mean your team, it might mean the whole company or the whole Mm -hmm. place. And and what she said was, in order to try to instill a culture of wellness at work, I've decided I'm gonna have to take a lunch break. And everyone in the room who did not work at a shelter was aghast and we said, you don't take a lunch break, isn't it like in your contract? And she said, oh, yeah, it's in my contract, but there's never enough time. and There's so much pressure and there's so much suffering and there's so much to do. And she said, but I've realized now I can't go on without actually taking some breaks. And because we were meeting with them in between retreats, we got to hear her progress. So she came in the first time and she said it didn't work. I closed the door <laughs> and someone crouched down and looked through the keyhole.
0: And they saw that
1: I was in there, so I didn't get a break and... Maybe three weeks later, she came back and she said, it worked. I closed the door and I turned off the lights and I got a break. <laughs> and I realized that the whole, the most difficult part of that whole narrative was probably deciding she needed it and she was going to go for it. And That's now, right. of course, you know, people are largely working remotely, although not everybody. And there are different kinds of pressures though that mm-hmm. might get translated into self compassion is wrong it's weak or mm. you, you shouldn't you shouldn't go there it's just not uh, it's not the path to success and so clearly the whole company <laughs> ethos is very yeah. different than that
0: sure sure yeah i my view on things is our first job is to take care of ourselves and you know our, i think one of the biggest things we do in life is raise our own consciousness Because as we do, as we become more self-aware, we also become more self-aware of others. And by nature, we start to become more compassionate. So you can open a newspaper, open your app that gives you the news and look at any of the world's problems. And there are an infinite number, it seems. But for me, the baseline of what I can do to solve each one of those problems starts with compassion. And that compassion starts with self-compassion. Because if I reorient myself from focusing on the negative or focusing on myself as a victim and orient towards joy and orient towards what can I do right now, I become so much stronger. And then that strength enables me to deal with life's terrors. It doesn't mean that I've sugarcoated them or hid from them. It just means I've strengthened so that I can deal with them. So for me, it starts with self-care and self-compassion.
1: Of course, that is the fear that's commonly held, that self-compassion means laziness. Gratitude means that I'll settle for almost nothing, you know? Mm.
0: Yeah. I I view it as the opposite. I think the the more aware we are, the stronger we are, the more discerning we can be about um, the values that we hold and when those values get trampled on and then gives us the strength to go operate from a clearer perspective.
1: So I'm very intrigued by your book title, The Full Body Yes. Change your work and your world from the inside out. And can you say something about it and how you how you came to it? Plus, I want to tell you, I'm gonna I'm gonna write to Soren immediately and ask him what I should do next. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well he'll have to wait until he gets the full body yes to tell you. <laughs> so for me the uh okay well The longer story is I wanted to call the book From Me to We, but there was some, you know, scandal about From Me to We, an organization which was going to show up every time you searched on it for the next two years. And we ended up with this title, which I like even better. So to me, the full body yes is when you are fully aligned. And it's especially poignant when we're struggling, like when we can't decide what to do or we're conflicted. And then something happens. It could, be, it could be grace. It could be we stumble into it. But all of a sudden, we just know. We just know we're supposed to do something. So as an example, um, I got recruited by LinkedIn eight or nine years ago to come do this job. And on the surface, I didn't want it. Like, it didn't, it didn't make any sense. Like, I loved my old job. But I interviewed a few times, four, five, six times. And one night, I woke up in the middle of the night, like 1.30 in the morning, wide awake. And I did not go back to sleep. And I just knew. I just had this incredibly strong feeling. I was supposed to do this work. I do this job. Uh, that's what I mean by it. Sometimes it's incredibly strong. And uh, then, you know, it's just everything about you screams. I got to do it. Full body. Yes.
1: And if you practice the kind of mindfulness, I'm assuming, I'm assuming you have, that allows <laughs> you to differentiate that from oh, kind of fear, a, you know, yeah. like.
0: So, this is very tricky because there's all kinds of things that we want in life, right like I might want the cherry pie that is in my refrigerator right now
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> or i I might want to win the lottery, I might want to take a vacation after all this quarantining is done, and separating these strong desires, sometimes even needs from this from this other place of of guidance of inner guidance is a lifelong pursuit. And I think some of it happens by trial and error. Mm-hmm. We listen, we think, oh yeah, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. And you say, and you start down a path and it's like, oh no, I, I don't got it. Um, and you learn to listen more carefully. I kind of think of it like this. It's like when we, when we listen to that inner guidance or listen to life, it's like we're at, we're in our apartment or whatever, our house, and we're watching TV and we hear this tap on the door. This is life trying to tell us something. We're like, no, no, no. Was that a tap, first of all? Was that a tap? I'm not really sure. Then we hear a knock, 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 knock. We're like, yeah, but I'm busy. Like, I'm, I'm busy with my show. I'm busy with my life right here. And then we hear this pounding. Like, life is really like trying to break us away from something. But we're so focused on what we've been doing. The TV show we're watching, we, we can't be bothered to get up and answer it. And if we don't listen, life will just blow the door open and mess up our whole life and our whole living room's rearranged and turned upside down. And then we complain like we're a victim. We're like, wow, ah, why didn't you tell me? Somebody should have just told me. I totally would have listened. Yeah. It's a lifelong practice.
1: Mm-hmm. The reason I asked was because the, the first thought that came up in my mind was uh, in 1974, uh, I was leaving India for what I was absolutely convinced was a very brief period back in the States uh-huh. before I went back to live in India for the entire rest of my life. And I was so sure. And I went to see one of my teachers, this woman named Deepama, to just like say goodbye and get her blessing for my extremely brief journey back to the States before (laughs) I went back to India for the rest of my life. And it was during that visit that she told me to teach. And she said when Mm. my friend Joseph Goldstein had already come back maybe six months before, and she said to me, when you go back, you'll be teaching with Joseph. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, Yes, she will. And I said, No, I won't. I mean, it was ludicrous in my uh, mind, both that I could teach and also that she thought that's what was gonna happen, because I was right? so sure right. it was not gonna be that way. And of course she was correct. So right. uh, it took me a while to see that. I mean I came back to the States, still convinced I was going back to India and then ended up in Boulder, uh, visiting Joseph, who was teaching at Naropa, met Jack Cornfield there and The three of us started getting invitations to teach, and so I said, "Oh yeah, I'll just do this course, then I'll go back to India." And then, you know, (laughs) and then there's another one. And it was like one day I woke up and I thought, "Oh, she was right. I could not have been more wrong."
0: Uh huh. Yeah this this is very tricky is to sort this out, and I think part of that means remaining open, right? Remaining open even after we. Feel like we're on the right path because it's a contin life is life is changing all the time so what's right today might not be right tomorrow but it's the constantly seeking it with that childlike wonder to say what what
1: does life want for me
0: what do i want and being a co-creator that's where the beauty and the magic happen i think
1: i think there's another balance because i think a lot of people uh, who probably feel they can't find a full body. Yes. Or if they do, yeah. it's something that's out of reach. And, and I think about that balance a lot of reaching for the things that light us up and also yeah. recognizing what actually is happening for us. And we've seen so much in this past year uncovering, say, systemic oppression that different communities face. And, uh, you know, it brings up the question, how do we reach and dream for more? when maybe the systems that we're facing in our workplaces, for example, are often not equitable.
0: Right, right. This is hard because sometimes life is really challenging. And we, we do, as humans, tend to focus on the negative. We've mm-hmm. just been programmed that way physically and emotionally. And it's kind of up to us to continually shift internally towards joy, towards optimism. And that shift may not In the short term change the external circumstances that depends on how much choice we have and how much influence we have over the circumstance but this reorientation towards optimism and joy makes us stronger and it's from that strength that we that we build our character that we build our strength to deal with the hard things Uh, just last night I rewatched the movie Invictus which is um, It's about Nelson Mandela. It's about South Africa and around 1993 to 95. And it was struck as was kind of the point of the movie in that he had spent 30 years ish in prison and then came out and was willing to forgive his captors. And when he did have the opportunity to influence, he didn't influence from a place of revenge or a place of vindictiveness. He tried to do it from a place of compassion, the we, including the people that had locked him up for 30 years. And so part of that was his own internal strength, this moving from, I'm a victim and life happens to me. There's a progression. It moves from life happens to me to life happens for me. Okay, then I see that, wow, what if I viewed every situation as a place to gain strength? And then eventually we get so strong, we become such a co-creator with life that life happens through me. Through us. So, this stuff is not easy. If it was easy, (laughs) well, if it was easy, we'd all be there, Uh, but we're clearly not.
1: Well, sometimes I think it's especially hard to try to describe in words because it's so experiential. It's like Mm. I I see the same problem with the word mindfulness because um, so many of the ways it's defined are accurate, but they're. Mm. Misconstrued often by us, like mindfulness means being with our experience without judging, or Mm. it means accepting things the way that they are. And I think about this time I was um, leading a meditation somewhere. And often when we teach, we begin by the suggestion, like sit and listen to sound. It's just Mm. a way of, of kind of relaxing deep inside. And so I'd gotten just that far in the instructions when someone raised their hand and said, what if it's the sound of the smoke alarm I hear going off? Should I sit here (laughs) mindfully knowing it's the smoke alarm going off or should I get up? And I said, I'd get up, you know, like, yeah, but it sounds that way. I can understand the question. I'm going to be mindful. Oh, I hear the smoke alarm without any judgment. And and so sometimes I think that um, misunderstanding is so prevalent, you know, that if we are developing compassion, if we're, uh, inspired, if we're lit up, if we're grateful, that means we're not going to do anything about the difficult circumstances that are actually pressing down upon us. Or we're not going to try to make change, but you're saying it's like the very basis of more effectively yes. making change.
0: Yes. I uh, the Kind of the arc, I think about it, is it starts with awareness. It starts with knowing ourselves, knowing why we make the decisions we make, the our internal systems, our emotions, the external systems that, that, that keep us the way we are. So it starts just by knowing ourselves, being aware, in, in kind of a non-judgmental way. The second part is loving ourselves, to really being clear on who we are, that deepest, highest part of us, and what's really important, what our values are, uh, having self-compassion. Then the third part, the third part is the hardest part, and that's about taking action not taking responsibility for ourselves. It's like, okay, well, if I'm not a victim, that means I'm in charge of my own life. And if I'm in charge of my own life, there's no one else to look to but me. And that's where the hard work comes. And when we can do all of those things, then we can grow and ultimately be of more service to others, which we follow the same three steps. We become aware of them. We love them and we take action on their behalf. And so when we, when we live all of this way, it doesn't make us passive. We're, we're not going to just become a passive spectator to life. We're going to be so much stronger and capable to then deal with the things that are outside of our values and try to make the world a better place while we're making ourselves a better person.
1: Surely you must have heard that complaint, right? That, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that uh, yeah. we're, we end up sort of some trance or something
0: (laughs) yes I I don't subscribe to that and um you know if you if you really practice well look there's lots of different kinds of practices in the world I believe in like the ones I like the most are the ones that get us in touch with mm, the the thing the thing itself whatever you want to call that in touch with life and life force and for me it's about tuning into that and then being a creator not just watching the river go by.
1: So, is what you just described, what you lay out in the book, is those steps for finding deeper fulfillment and happiness in work life?
0: Yeah, I okay. think so. Yeah, and and part of that, you know, part of that is is realizing that we can do it, even even if the outside circumstances don't change, we can change. As, as a Rumi quote, which I'll paraphrase, uh, something like. Yesterday, I was clever, and I tried to change the world. And today, I am wise, and I'm working on changing myself. Mm -hmm. Now, this isn't just saying, okay, like you said, we just become trans-like, and we're just changing ourselves, so we'll accept anything that comes. That's not true either. Like, we're strengthening ourselves to be happy and joyful and creative and optimistic, no matter what's happening to us. But as we do that, we're building our strength to then become a broader force in the world. To change the things we can.
1: So, at LinkedIn, as an example, um, I'm thinking about operationalizing again. You know, <laughs> right. My right. favorite new word. Mm-hmm. Um, and back to communication. So, if somebody yeah. uh, wants to change something about expectations uh associated with their job, um that would be a part of it, right? Like to be able to express that with maybe compassion all around, you know, rather than sure. bitterness. Do you mean
0: <laughs> do you mean uh an employee expressing how they want their own job to be different?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think it's it follows all the same suit. It follows the it, one of the worst mistakes you can come in is like, it's all about me. Me, 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 me. Well, I want this and I want this and I want this without any recognition that you're part of a bigger system. Just like in a family, if you're in relationships, you you compromise because you're part of a system. In the same way, if somebody comes in, it's like, well, look, I know that you hired me to do X and here's what I think I'm good at and here's where you told me I need to work on and here's what I'm working on. And over time, I'd like to explore you know these other three things, and i 'm wondering if those can be part of my job more over time and there's nothing wrong with that it 's like you know i my my language is look i 'm here to help LinkedIn succeed you know, and if we get to the point where the things I want to do are not the things that LinkedIn wants me to do succeed then we should we should have a conversation to see how we can align or choose to part ways and that happens at every level of the organization as long as we do it in an open and honest and constructive way we'll We'll work together to try to find a solution, because as a manager, the I would really love it to find how to light that person up, because I know that if they are doing the thing that they're most passionate about, or if we shade their job towards they get to do a little bit more of that thing they're most passionate about, they're going to be so much better at their job. Mm-hmm. So I want to encourage that.
1: I think about some. So I was on a uh, uh, panelist to grander word, it was just me and Eileen Fisher, uh-huh. the clothing manufacturer. And uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, we were at some conference together and I was interviewing her um, up on stage. And, and uh, she was talking about some of the um, things she had instituted as a company, like a minute of silence before a meeting and um, the ability for people to give her feedback, yeah. even as the founder. And... Mm-hmm. things like that but every once in a while it was almost like this chorus she would say and the clothes have to be made and then <laughs> yes. you know we'd chat about something and say and the clothes need to be made and yeah. it was like oh yeah that is a reality too this is a business
0: that's right it's the when we move from me to we we don't lose the me me is part of the we in other words You know, so we we have found that businesses that are the most successful take care of their customers and their employees and themselves, their shareholders, and these are the ones who have that balance that are actually the most successful monetarily. Like they make the most money. So this is not just some feel good hippie thing. Like this is how you win. This is how you build a business. Yeah,
1: it's like my friend George Mumford, who wrote this book called The Mindful Athlete, who was the mindfulness coach for the uh, L.A. Lakers and Chicago. Bears Uh and then uh, the um, New York Knicks. And, Uh you know, he was just going wherever Phil Jackson Mm -hmm. uh, went and and would bring him. And uh, one of Phil Jackson's apparently um, strong, strong uh, themes was you've got to think like a team. And so when George's book came out and we were doing some stuff together and somebody in the room would always ask, like, how in the world do you get, like, uh, brilliant superstar to not just be focused on their own success and, and to be thinking like a team. And George would say, cause that's how you win. Yeah. That's how it that's actually right. works best. That's right. That's right.
0: Yeah. And even, even the greats like Michael Jordan learned that mm-hmm. over time, right? learned learned how to make their teammates better that you can't play in basketball. You can't play one on five and win you have to have your teammates there to be successful
1: somebody I was in conversation with recently a friend she was defining a good actor that way too it's somebody who makes mm. the other people on stage seem better yeah that's right that's right so you you said something very interesting about working from home somehow uh, also because it's more revealing and it's true i just said to somebody Earlier, say I'm like the nosiest person on Zoom. I'm like always looking at people's bookshelves <laughs> and backgrounds. Well, like I said to you, "Where's your guitar?" Right. Uh-huh, uh-huh. From the other That's thing right. we did together. <laughs> and so, uh, but there clearly, you know, there's so much stress as well. So I'm wondering about operationalizing things differently or the same.
0: Yeah. So, so first of all, during this pandemic and quarantining and whatever, I think it's from company perspective, the this work of mindfulness and mindset and mental well being um, just got a great fast forward, because companies realize how important it is to their employees, and most, you know, especially in the information age, most companies don't have hard assets; they have their people, and they very much realize that. When they take care of their people or they develop their people the company's going to do better and when everybody is struggling or almost everybody is struggling then these types of things like mental wellness are even more important so there's what i'm saying is there's a lot more receptivity now in the last few years it was already headed that way but it got this giant fast forward and so it could be it could be things like you know benefits that we offer at the company level so as an example you know, some companies are giving, you know, one day a week or one day a month that we schedule no meetings. I mean, you're still working if you want to, but there's no meetings scheduled. So hopefully you get caught up a little bit or additional time off or, so those are, you know, benefits that we offer. It could be as simple as when you start a staff meeting, just going around, around the group, like what's, what's one thing you're grateful for before we get started? And this practice is powerful, Um, you know, and we've done this for a long time at LinkedIn. And there's certainly times in my career, even at LinkedIn, where I would sit in that meeting and go, wow, we are spending a lot of time on this. Like we have clothes to make, Yeah, (laughs) right? But what, but what's, what's real, especially in this time is that when we spend that time to get to know each other and to, um, get to know each other as people and to build some vulnerability, even a little bit beyond the veneer, we're developing connection. And that does a number of things. One is if I feel as an employee more connected to my team, I'm going to get them more involved. I'm going to be a better communicator. If I feel more connected to my manager, to my company, I'm going to give more. I'm also going to feel better about my job. If we're more connected to our customers, I'm going to feel better about my job because I feel like, oh, wow, I'm actually doing something valuable in the world. Mm -hmm. So all of these things that build connection, when we operationalize this connection, when we operationalize this moving from me to we lead to happier, more fulfilled individuals, which leads to higher performing teams, which leads to a higher performing company. So it all fits very beautifully. Now we're just, you know, on this wave of making it all happen and being mainstream.
1: And then one more question. I, I, are the compassion and mindfulness programs separate programs? Mm-hmm. Kind of.
0: Yes. So on the mindfulness side, you know, my job is to mainstream mindfulness. So we offer everything from, you know, weekly, daily meditation sessions, literally meditation sessions. We offer, we partner with Wisdom Labs. So we have Mm -hmm. a Wise at Work app that we've gotten everybody access to. And it's more than just meditation. Uh, There's also great content about things like, hey, I'm about to go into this really stressful meeting. What do I do? Or I'm about to go into give feedback or get feedback. What do I do? So that's really, that's really powerful. We do uh, drop-in sessions, uh, community sessions, There's another Wise at Work tool, product, where for about 45 minutes or half an hour, first it's a five to eight minute talk, then another five to eight minutes of practice. But then it's communication. It's, you know, discussion with whoever comes. So that's a beautiful way to build community. Every year we do a 30-day challenge just to kind of get everybody excited and gives them something to do. Uh, to to meet them where they are in their in the spirit of mindfulness. So often times we have people who have never tried anything in the mindfulness world before, but because it's a challenge, <laughs> you know, and just at ever so slightly a little bit of competition, they join. Yeah, you know? and then I I'll see them some other time, and they're like, Hey, I'm on a 400 day streak. Like, wow, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Uh, we do things like mini retreats where in the old, in the old days before quarantine, we mm-hmm. would get together on Saturday mornings for four hours. Now we do Fridays once a quarter by Zoom for two or three hours. So those are the mindfulness things. On the compassion side, I teach workshops um, because this it's not just a practice, although I do lead compassion practices. Here we're talking about, okay, how do we actually put this in place? How do we treat each other? How do we still make the clothes? Right? So we have, a, as an example, we have a new workshop called Compassionate Accountability. Mm-hmm. You know, so in other words, these are for managers. How do I get my team to make the clothes? How do I get my team to get stuff done and hold them accountable and be compassionate? How do I, how do I live both sides of those worlds? So those are kind of the two different worlds.
1: That's fantastic. Um, how do you get... <laughs> People to <laughs> make the clothes and coming from a place of compassion.
0: Yeah. It starts it starts with relationship. It mm-hmm. starts with connection. Cause look, it's I think it's a lot easier to be a command and control manager. You could say, look, I told you to do it. Just do it. Well, that works in the moment because of fear and because of whatever. But over time that person's eventually going to start looking for a different job. So it starts with connection. It starts by saying, Hey, look. You, you've told me about your home life. I understand things are really hard and collectively we've got a job to do. So let's, let's have a discussion about what we can do together and what's reasonable or not reasonable right now. We'll continue to evaluate it. Let me know what I can do to support you. And, and it comes from this place of they know I have their back. And when they know I have their back, they can have an open and vulnerable conversation about what's real. And when we both can have that conversation about what's real, then collectively we can decide what to do together.
1: Fabulous. So I'm wondering if, um, to close out our discussion, you could lead us in a a guided practice of some kind. Yes,
0: I would love to. I love love the practices that are about compassion, uh, as I know you do. And so I am going to, uh, I'll do one on self-compassion for today. So we'll start just by finding yourself a comfortable spot, you know what that looks like. Make a conscious choice about the way you're seated or the way you're being. We'll start with our breath. Just taking a deep breath in and out, exhaling all the way. Letting go of any tension that you might be holding in your jaw Shoulders and just allowing yourself to be fully present to arrive in this precious present moment. Perhaps letting a smile cross your face and allowing that smile in your heart as well. And if you're comfortable, you can put your hand on your heart, on your chest, and first just feel the gentle rise and fall of your hand on your heart with your long slow breaths. When we give someone else a hug, our bodies release oxytocin and we feel a soothing effect. And in a similar way, just the simple hand on our own heart, we can feel that soothing. So perhaps imagining, remembering a time in your life from your childhood when you were soothed by your mother, your grandmother, and the person in your life who gave that to you. And feeling that, smile, that relaxation, that calm. And then if you're comfortable, you can say inwardly to yourself, I am strong. May I be the strength that I need. I am patient. May I have patience with myself. I am creative, may my creative spark shine. I am compassion, may I have compassion for myself. And I am love. May I give myself love unconditionally may I give others love unconditionally and if you like to visualize you could visualize a golden light that starts at your heart and just expands expands with each breath expands your smile. And then with your hand on your heart, you can say your name followed by, I love you. So I would say, Scott, I love you. And for some of us, we have judgment or hesitation. Let that go. And with complete freedom, giving this freedom to yourself, say your name, followed by, I love you. With each breath, including a smile, increasing that glow. as you say it over and over and receive it openly without filter. Basking in that good feeling. and then gently expanding your awareness outward into the world and feel what it's like to send that same joy, that same unconditional love out into the world, to your friends and family and expanding beyond to the entire universe. As you give it freely, You set yourself free. And you also begin to feel it reflected back by all the others you're connected to. A singular drop, but in the infinite ocean of love and mercy. And when you're ready, you can return gently your attention here to this moment, bringing that good feeling with you. You can stretch, move your toes
1: and fingers.
0: May the blessings be.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. It's really wonderful being with you again and congratulations again on the book, which I think is really wonderful.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate your support and friendship and help. Thank you for being you and doing the work that you do.
1: Thank you. And so to learn more about Scott's work, you can visit s-o-t-t-s-h-ut-e.com. The big thank you to everyone out there listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May be safe, may be happy, be healthy and live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at sharonsalzburg.com.